Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, and we hope that you are encouraged by today's message. Say right up front that Corey has never beaten me in bowling, and that will not happen on that night or any other night. So you need to come to Family Fun Night to watch the domination continue. I'll just leave that at that. Uh, a couple years ago, our family went to Disney World. Uh, we had a blast. Uh, we, we went and we took our four kids. They were three years younger than they are now. So at that time, they were eight, six, four, and two. And uh, my brother and his family came with us. At that point, they had two children. They have two more now, but uh, they had two children. And so there were six uh, children and four adults. And, and we got up early one morning, went to the park. We were some of the first people in the park. So we parked in one of the first parking spots available closest to the park. We got on the little train thing. We drove to the front gate. We went into the gate. We went into the park there. And man, we rode everything and did everything and we had a blast. But with six kids of that age, and even four adults really, we got a little tired by midday. So we had the kind of pass where we could leave the park, go get lunch, go rest a little bit, then come back to the park. So that's what we decided to do. And so we kind of left. We gathered everybody at the gate. We decided, here's the plan. We're going to go get on the train. We're going to go to the car. We're going to get in the car. We're going to go get something to eat. And everybody's like, all right, let's do it. So we start moving our four adults and six kids out of the gate. And as soon as we walk out of the gate, we see that the train that takes us to the parking lot was about to pull off. We decided we don't want to wait on the next train. So we all kind of run towards the train and they make you break down your stroller. And we had like, I don't know, 11 dozen of those. So we started breaking down the strollers and getting the kids up on the train and doing all the stuff that we had to do. And the train's trying to leave. And so we get everybody up on the train and we go. And we don't have to ride very far because remember, we were in the closest parking lot to the park. And so we get to the parking lot, we get to the car, we get out of the train and we get all the strollers and we get all the kids and we get all the stuff and we move. And really close to where the train let us off is where our car was at. So we get to the car, it was like a minivan, we're all going to pile in and go back to where we were staying. And so we, we start getting in and my brother and I are going to take all the strollers and put those in the car and my uh, Corey and my sister-in-law are going to get all the kids in, get them buckled up. And so I hear Corey, she's getting the kids in, she's talking to them. Yeah, I know you had fun, that was great, get in your seat, let's buckle you up. And then I hear her say, Tucker, come here, let me get you in your seat. Well, Tucker at that time was four, he's our youngest son. Tucker was four and she said, Tucker, come here and let me get you in your seat. And so I think she's calling to Tucker to come get in his seat. Well, then she says, Tucker, where are you at? Come here, come get in the seat. Well, then she says to me, Jeremy, send Tucker over here to get him in the seat. Well, I don't have Tucker. I got a stroller and a brother. That's all I got. (laughs) And so as soon as she said that, I didn't even wait for instructions. I took off on a dead sprint back towards the gate of the park. Now, I know when you look at me, you think sprinter, right? But I promise you on this day, in this moment, I could have beaten Usain Bolt because I was running as fast as humanly possible to the front gate of that park. I got close to the front gate. About that time, Corey, has, has, she's running behind me, and my brother just steps over to the security guard that's standing there in the parking lot, and he's telling him what's happened. Well, I get close to the front of the park, and the way they've got the park set up, there is a row of bushes, and I turned into a hurdler. I mean, at full sprint, I hurdled over the bushes. It was a thing of beauty, at least in my head. And I went over the bushes. I took about three steps, and then I jumped over the little turnstile that you have to walk through to get into the park, which they frown upon that. And so I jumped over the turnstile, and when my feet hit the pavement, I was immediately surrounded by security. They said, sir, you need to stop. I was like, I've lost my son. 
And they said, we have Tucker in the office. I was like, what, does he have a part-time job here? You just know him? Well, what happened was my brother walked to the security guard in the parking lot, and, and he said to the security guard, here's what we lost, Tucker. He's four years old. He's got sandy blonde hair. So they called to the front gate. Well, around the same time all this is happening, what we later found out is that as we were leaving the gate, Tucker saw some toy sitting over to the side that he liked, and so he turned to look at it. We kept walking. In our hurry to get on the train, we didn't realize, I mean, we had like 11 dozen kids. We didn't realize we were missing one of them. And so we get on the train, we take off. Tucker's still standing there looking at the toy. Well, here's what happened. He eventually turns back around, doesn't see us. Disney cast members are trained if they see a kid doing this. They walk up, and this, this young lady walked up to him and said, hey, do you see your mom and dad? He said, no. She said, well, what, what are their names? He said, mom and dad. <laughs> He said, no, it's, it's Jeremy and Corey. And she said, okay. She said, so Jer- your mom and dad got lost. Thankfully, you're found, but they're lost. She said, so let's look. And she said, do you see them? What are they wearing? And so she tries to help. Can't find them. She says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you go and play, and I'm going to try to find your mom and dad who are lost. And so she takes him into the office. He's playing with like a Peter Pan boat and all kinds of toys. He was not worried in the least. And so when I said, I'm missing my son, they said, we have Tucker in the office. They had gotten the radio call, right? So I walk in. When he sees me, he starts crying. Then what they did is they gave him a voucher for free ice cream later in the day, which incentivizes running away from your parents at Disneyland. (laughs) So all day long, Tucker's like hiding in the rack. I'm getting free ice cream. You know, like, I don't know. But here's here's what I know. I would have done anything to find Tucker. Like, I would have done anything to find him because I love him. He's my son. I value him. I didn't care if anybody else in the park was lost. I was focused on my son because he was lost. Now, I don't know if you've ever had any kind of experience like that. My heart's still beating kind of fast thinking about it. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that in your own family, with your own child, maybe with a friend. Maybe you got separated on a trip. Maybe you were the one lost and you were panicked. I don't know. But here's what I know. I would have done anything, and I know that you probably would have too in the same kind of moment, because there was somebody that I loved, somebody that I valued, that I wanted to find. I wanted them to be safe. Well, today, as we continue in our series, Let Us Pray, we're going to talk about that idea. Last week, we started this series, Let Us Pray, where we were just talking about, like, what do you pray when you don't know what to pray? We talked about being overwhelmed, and we talked about when we're just up against it, and we don't know. We need God to be our refuge and our strength. We don't know what to pray. We don't know what to say. And so last week, we just said, when you get in that moment, all you need to say is, God, help us. God, help me. You're praying for yourself personally. Well, today, we're going to talk about a little different kind of prayer. We're not going to pray about you or changing your condition. We're going to pray for somebody else, and we're just going to pray, God, save us or save them. God, save them. Save that person. Help that person to be safe, kind of like I was experiencing when I was chasing after Tucker. So if you got a Bible, I want you to grab that and turn to Genesis 18. If you don't have a Bible, but you got a device, you can follow along there. Most of the scriptures will be up on the screen today. Genesis chapter 18 is a place where we're going to find a story about good old father Abraham. This is a guy we sing about. It's a guy many of us know, even if we've not been raised in the church, not been around the Bible very much. Genesis 18 begins with the story of Abraham and his wife Sarah, And and verse 1 tells us very specifically that the Lord visits Abraham. 
And we're going to see three men in this story in Genesis 18 and then two of them carrying over to Genesis 19 who are visiting, talking to, interacting with Abraham and some characters in this story, some people that are here in this narrative in Genesis 18 and 19. And so the Lord is visiting Abraham, and we understand that there are two other men that are with him. We understand them because of Genesis 18 to be angels, to be heavenly presence there, and they're in bodily form. And so these three men come, they visit Abraham, they have a conversation with them. And the first 15 verses, they're talking to him, and Sarah really, through extension there, they're talking to him about the idea that about a year from now, they're going to come back, and Abraham and Sarah, who are really old, are going to have a son. And Sarah laughs in the tent. She's preparing a meal for these guests. She laughs. God hears her and says, why is Sarah laughing? And Sarah lies about it and says, I wasn't laughing. And then like in a drop the mic moment in verse 15, if you want to read it, God's like, yeah, you did. And then that's all he says. Yeah, you laughed. And then we don't even come back to it. So there's this conversation that's taking place with this human form of God, these angels that are here interacting. And then in verse 16, we see the conversation shift because the men get up and they're going to walk away. They're going to leave. And God, it says here, records the thoughts of God. It says, do I want to tell Abraham what I'm going to do in Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah is this, it's this town not too far away. What we saw a few chapters ago, which we, we talked about a few weeks ago, is that Abraham and Lot, Lot was uh, Abraham's nephew. They divided up the land that they were living on. Abraham went one way, Lot went the other way. And Lot's land, Lot's place that he went, included the town of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a wicked and evil and immoral place. You can read about it in history. You can also read about it in Scripture. In Genesis 19, it details some very wicked and evil things that were taking place by the people of that city, the men of that city. It's a very, very bad place. And so God is going to go and to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the thought that he had. He was going to go and see what was going on there. And Abraham and God begin to have this conversation about what's taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah and what his plan is. And this is what it says in Genesis 18, verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see what they have, if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me, and if not... I will know. And so the plan is that God is going to go and to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in his justice, in his judgment. And he wants to go down and see what's happening here. Now, when I read this, and it troubles me a little bit, but what we see happening is that Abraham immediately goes into negotiating mode. You ever negotiated with God about something? Like it could be big, it could be small. You're interviewing for a new job and you're like, God, if you'll just let me get this job. I will pay 20% tithes off of my paycheck for the first year that I have this job. Some of you are laughing because you've said that same thing to God. Like, God, I will do what. God, I'm going to ask this girl out. And if you will just, I don't have a shot with her, but if you will just let her say yes, just let her be stupid for a minute and just say yes to me. God, I will name our first child Zerubbabel or something. Like, you're just, you don't know what you're going to promise God, but you're negotiating with him. Like, whatever I've got to do here, God, I'm, I will never miss church ever again, God, if you will just let me get this car. Like, let this salesman come down on his asking price. God, I will join a life group. I will serve in my church. Like, what? You just start negotiating. Well, this is what Abraham begins doing in his conversation with God here, beginning in verse 16 and throughout the remainder of chapter 18 of Genesis this negotiating that happens back and forth. And so here's what Abraham says to God when he finds out that God is going to go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, well, God, uh, he, he says real elaborately, he, real eloquently, he says, God, but what if you go to that place? What if you go to Sodom and Gomorrah? What if you find 50 righteous people? Would you save Sodom and Gomorrah if you could find 50 righteous people? And God says, yeah, 50 sounds like a good number. 
If there's 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll save it. And Abram says, okay, all right, well, what if, what if there are five less than 50? For those that are keeping score at home, that's 45. And the Bible says five less than 50. I'm assuming that's Abraham trying to make it sound like, you know, it's connected to something that God's already agreed to. He's already agreed to 50, so five less than 50 sounds like just a little bit. And God says, yeah, I mean, if there's 45 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I'll, I'll save it. He says, okay, but par- pardon me, Lord, what if, what if there's just 40? God says, oh, yeah, okay, if there's, if there's 40, yeah, okay, I'll save Sodom and Gomorrah if there's 40. And he says, but what if there's just 30? God says, well, yeah, if there's 30, I'll save Sodom and Gomorrah. If there's only 30, that's fine. He says, yeah, but what if there's just 20? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess if there's 20, I'll save the 20. Yeah, okay, I'll save the town because of the 20. Abraham says, but what if there's only 10? I assume, I'm reading into the scriptures here. This is not exactly what it says, but I assume that Abraham and Lot have been talking and that Abraham knows through Lot's stories how bad Sodom and Gomorrah is and he's assuming that God is going to go and find out it's as bad as he thinks it is and he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and it's going to destroy his family that's there. And so he says, God, what, what, if, what if there's just 10? Like, what if there's just 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Would you save Sodom and Gomorrah if there's just 10? And this is what God answers in the middle portion of verse 32 of Genesis 18. He answered, God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Man, when I, when I hear that, like, it, it kind of hurts my heart. Because I don't know that I love Old Testament God, like, in his wrath and his justice and his judgment and Like, I want compassionate God through the person of Jesus that won't let the accusers throw rocks at the woman who's guilty. Like, I want that kind of God in my life. But when I read that God's saying, no, 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 I'm going to destroy an entire city and all the people that live there, I'm like, God, I don't know how that makes me feel. But then I hear him say, okay, you know what, but but for 10, for the sake of 10, I mean, I I won't destroy them for the sake of 10. It's the idea that what we see here is we see the justice of God right next to the mercy of God. We see the judgment that's necessary from God right next to the compassion of God. The book of 1 Peter in the New Testament tells us that in the days of Noah, God was patient. And yet when I read that, God doesn't seem so patient because I remember in the days of Noah that God destroyed the earth and everybody in it. It doesn't sound very patient to me, except... When I remember that at the very beginning of the story, God told Noah what his plan was. I'm going to send a flood to destroy the earth. And then he was patient, even though that was his plan, while Noah built a boat that took about 100 years so that Noah could help save mankind. And then I began to see all throughout Scripture that everywhere I see the judgment of God, I always see the salvation of God. He judges the entire earth and brings a flood. And yet he waits until Noah can finish the boat to save mankind. He's going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah, but if it's just for 10 people, maybe he would save mankind. At some point, if we believe what the Bible says, all of us, all of humanity, will stand before God in judgment. And yet just next to that judgment, I also see the mercy of God that he sent in the person of Jesus Everywhere there is the judgment of God, there is always the salvation of man. That's God's plan. 
And when I read this story and when I read the conversation and I read the negotiations, what I see is that God values things differently than I do. Because Abraham really didn't care about 50 people. He didn't care about 45 people or 40 people or 30 people or 20 people or 10 people. You know who he cared about? He cared about Lot. He cared about his nephew and he cared about his nephew's family. And he wanted to make sure that if judgment was coming and bad things were going to happen and if God was going to pour out his justice, that his family and his friends would be saved. That's who he cared about. And I see in this story that God values things differently than I value things. Did you know that a penny doesn't really cost a penny? Did you know that? Up until 2011, the penny that is worth one cent in our economy actually cost 2.4 cents to make. After 2011, it cost 1.7 cents to make. You should have received a penny when you came in. If you didn't, if you'll lift your hand, we've got some guys that'll pass you one. You can just lift your hand, they'll give you one. But if you, if you have one, I just want you to hold it in your hand here, and I want you to look at it. Look at the date, look at the picture, look on the back, see what's there, look at the inscriptions that are there that... Our currency, the U.S. Mint, they put together these, uh, these different denominations of money. And the, the penny is the smallest of those denominations. It's worth one cent, one part of a hundred. And so when I tell you that the cost to make a penny was 2.4 cents up until 2011 and 1.7 cents after 2011 up until today, you go, well, that's not that much money. That's not a big deal. But if I were holding a $100 bill right now, I feel like I would probably have your attention a little better. But if I were holding a $100 bill and I told you that up until 2011, it cost the U.S. government $240 to make that $100 bill. And since 2011, it cost the U.S. government $170 to make that $100 bill. It changes the conversation a little bit. For them to make the pennies that circulate within the United States, they lose, the U.S. Mint loses five to seven million dollars every year to make the penny. It costs them about 57 million dollars to print all of these, to make all of these pennies. And the reason is because of how the penny is made and what is contained in the penny. It's a combination of copper and zinc. And how the cost changed in 2011 is they changed the, the different ways that it was composed. And they had to do it a certain way because they wanted every machine that accepted pennies to still recognize the electromagnetism of that penny and the same weight and the same balance, but they wanted to try to cut the cost. And so they were able to do that and cut it from 2.4 cents to 1.7 cents. But i got to be honest, I don't really value the penny. There's been a conversation going on for the last five or ten years about them completely discontinuing the penny from our currency. And when I hear that, I'm like, that's fine. I don't really care. Because I don't value the penny. It would save them $57 million if they just quit making them every year. Now I realize there's a lot of changes they'd have to make. Everything would have to balance out where it ended in five cents or 10 cents when you're buying something. I get all that. But man, I don't really value the penny. I've thought about in my life, and this may be a little bit, I, I may have missed a few, I'm not sure, but I think I've probably sucked up $300 worth of these in the vacuum cleaner. I've probably broken more vacuum cleaners than I've sucked up because, I mean, I'm telling you, like, I, I don't value the penny. When I, when I walk by and I see a penny on the ground, I just usually leave it there. If I see a quarter, I've been down and get it because I can get a gumball with that, right? But a penny, I can't really get anything for a penny, so I just leave it on the ground. What I don't realize is that if I get enough pennies, I can get a gumball, Right? If I take enough pennies and I put them in a little bank, a piggy bank, or I take them and I deposit them, I take them to a little coin star machine or whatever I got to do, I can actually get a lot of money for a lot of pennies. 
But a penny by itself just seems like it's nothing. It seems like, well, I mean, it's just copper and zinc, and it's, it's just worth a cent. And so I don't really do anything with that. Tucker, the one that I told you about that got lost at Disney World, he, he steals all of our money in our house. I don't mean he borrows it. I mean like he walks around our house and takes all the money he can find that's not like strapped down somewhere. And some of it that is. It's in my wallet. He takes it out. He's like, look, I found money. I'm like, where'd you get that? He's like, out of your wallet. Like he steals it. But here's what Tucker knows. If he takes a bunch of change that he finds in our house, I'll go through it and I'll keep all the nickels, dimes, and quarters and I'll give him all the pennies. But he's figured out that if he gets enough pennies, he counted them for me last night. If he gets 25 pennies, that's a quarter. He gets a gumball. Like, he knows the value of these pennies, that if he accumulates enough of them, there's value there, there's worth there. I don't do enough of that in my life. Because when I look at this, I just think it's one cent. What can I get for one cent? I can't really do anything for a penny. I'm afraid for a lot of us, that's the way we value people. We just look at people and go, well, they're good for nothing. I mean, they don't have as much talent as somebody else, the nickel or the dime kind of people, the quarter kind of people. I mean, they're just a penny. Like, I don't understand why anybody would want to hang out with that person. I don't, want, I don't understand why anybody would value that kind of person. They're just, they're just a penny kind of person. And unfortunately, what we've done is we've allowed ourselves to be labeled by people that devalue us. Oftentimes, what we've done is that we've allowed those who cannot see our value to determine what we think we're worth. We have allowed those who cannot see our value to determine what we think we are worth. And that's bad enough, but then we also go around devaluing other people. Because you say, well, you're just a penny person. You don't count for much. You're not worth very much. But here's what I know. The penny is only worth one cent to me because my relationship with the penny is very conditional. I only use the penny for what I can get for the penny. But to the creator of the penny... The value is not one cent, it's 1.7 cents. It used to be 2.4 cents. Because the value to the creator is what it cost them. And you and I walk around allowing people that are not our creator to assign us our value, and it's always lower than what we're worth. You know what you're worth to God? Not what somebody says about you. You're worth to God what it cost him, and it cost him Jesus. That's what you're worth. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for you. You're not worth a penny. You're worth Jesus. The people in your life that can't see your value do not have permission to tell you what you're worth. Only your creator does. But here's the problem for you and I. Sometimes out of our own hurt and our own pain, Sometimes out of our own insecurity or our own pride, we begin devaluing other people because we think if we devalue them, it raises our value. Instead of reflecting the value that God sees in them because we are followers of Jesus Christ, for those of us in the room that are, we take on that, fl that, that flesh and sin nature and we call them penny people because we forget what it costs God for them. You got somebody in your life, you think that's just a penny type person. They're not good for a whole lot. I would encourage you to try to view them through the lens of their heavenly father, the creator of the universe who has a much better understanding of their value than you do. 
because he knows what they cost him. Genesis 18 is not a story of Abraham negotiating with God for 50 people, or 45 people, or 40 people, or 30 people, or 20 people, or 10 people. Abraham was negotiating with God for one person, Lot. And here's the thing. You and I may say, well, man, God had a plan, though. God has justice to administer. He has judgment to reign down on Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, I don't understand why God would change his mind. Because God always values the one. Luke chapter 15 is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. It has three incredible stories there. It has the story of a lost sheep. It has the story of a lost coin. And it has the story of a lost or prodigal son. And in Luke chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, this is what it says. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. While you and I always seem to find value in bigger numbers, God sees the value in even the smallest number. One. At our church, we exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, especially those who are disconnected from Christ. We are unapologetic about the idea that we exist for those who are disconnected because here's what we know. If you're in this room and you're a Christ follower, at one time or another, you were the disconnected. You were the one that God said was more important than the 99. He said, I'm going after the one. And at some point in your life and at some point in mine, I was the one. You were the one that God left the fold and came and found us. Somebody had a hard conversation with us. Somebody got a little uncomfortable and had a spiritual conversation with us or entered into a conversation that made them uncomfortable, maybe made us a little uncomfortable. Somebody led us in a prayer. Somebody invited us to church or to a Bible study. But there was a moment when we were the one and somebody left the comfort of the flock and came to find me. Came to find you. Because God sees value in the one. We are unapologetic about going after the disconnected. And if you're in the room today and you say, I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ, I would say to you, welcome. This is a safe place for you. You can belong here before you believe. This is a place where you can ask all the questions that you have and we are not going to judge you for those questions because we used to have those same questions and truth be told, we probably still have some of the exact same questions. We're not perfect people. We're a people trying to live for God the best we know how. And this is a place for you to come and try to figure that out for yourself. Because we believe that God values even the smallest, seemingly insignificant things that others cannot see value in. This is a place for the disconnected because we believe that God values them. We don't actually exist for people who have already found God. We exist for people who are searching for God and God is on the hunt for. We want to be on the hunt for them too. And so the question for me today, the the question that I, I go back to when I look at Genesis 18 is, 
what am I supposed to pray then? Last week we talked about praying, help us, help me. I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to say. I'm in trouble. I need a refuge. I need a strength. Help me. Help us. But what do we pray when we're talking about other people? What if we just prayed, God, save them? doesn't change my circumstances, but what if I just got burdened about somebody in my life? What if my heart broke for penny people? People that other people don't see value in. But I do. Because they're my nephew, like Lot was to Abraham. Or they're my brother, or they're my sister, they're my husband or my wife, they're my friend, they're my coworker, they're my classmate, they're my neighbor, they're my teacher, they're my student. Other people look at them and say they are a penny person, but I see them as the one that God values. And so here's the conversation that we just read, which causes me to evaluate my conversations. Who am I negotiating with God on behalf of? Like, where do I see the judgment of God pending? Where do I see the justice of God that it must be poured out there? Who is my one? Like, who am I asking God for 50 and 45 and 40 and 30 and 20 and 10 when I really know it's just about one? Who's your one? Who's the member of your family? Who's the person on your job? Who's the person in your neighborhood? Who's the person you know right now? You need to call them. You need to visit them. Who is your one? I would even ask it a different way. Who are you begging God for today? Like, who are you just begging God? God, I know you've got to be just, and I know you've got to judge sin, and I know you've got to judge unrighteousness, and and, and I'm not trying to get you to stop that because I know that's your nature, and I know that's who you are, but everywhere I see your judgment, I also see your salvation, and so God, could you just save, fill in the blank. God, I'm begging you for, fill in the blank. Up here on these walls, we have these prayer boards and we're asking God for healing and we're asking God for general prayer needs, but we also are asking God for salvation. And if you haven't done so already, I encourage you to come up here before you leave today and write somebody's name on one of these pieces of paper and roll it up and stick it in this board. And when you do, I'm saying to you, God, save them. God, heal them. God, touch them. They are the one. The story of Genesis 18 is not about Abraham begging for 50 people. It's about Abraham begging for one guy. And God saved Lot. There's so much about that story that probably makes us uncomfortable, but God saved Lot. And I know that I'm so thankful that somebody was praying for me because I was their one. And I want to make sure that I'm praying for my one. That as much as it depends on me, I'm begging God for the salvation of fill in the blank. They're not just worth a penny because I'm not their creator. They are worth whatever it cost their creator. And every single person that you and I know, it cost God Jesus for them. If you've got that penny, I want you to take it and put it in your hand. And we're going to pray this morning, and that penny is not a penny, it's a person. And as we pray over this penny that represents a person in your life, 
I want you to call them by name. If you're not a Christ follower in the room, maybe this penny is you. Maybe you're putting that penny there because you're like, I'm not even a believer. Maybe it represents you. Maybe it represents somebody you know. And so today we're going to beg God for some people. And we're going to ask God to save some people that maybe we or others have overlooked and didn't see their value. But today we recognize what they're worth to their creator. Because God values the one. Let's pray. God, I thank you today for your grace and for your mercy. God, we understand that you're a just God who must judge and punish sin. We believe that. We understand that we don't always like it. and We know we've been on the receiving end of that. But God, today we pray for your mercy and we ask you to just save the people that we know. We're not praying for ourselves or our situations unless we're not a Christ follower in the room. But today we're just saying save them. Heal them, touch them, save them today, God. It's not about 50 or 40 or 30 or 20 or 10 for most of us in the room. It's about a friend or a loved one or a sister or a daughter. It's about a coworker. It's about a student or a teacher today. And so, God, we just say, save them today. God, we repent for every time we've ever devalued someone because we didn't recognize their worth in your eyes. And God, today we pray for you to heal us from every time anybody's looked at us and devalued us because they didn't know what we were worth in your eyes. So God, today we pray for salvation to come for those who need to be found. And God, we pray for healing for those who need to be valued the way that you value them. Let us take this penny as a reminder that you set our worth. And God, we thank you that you are a God who saves. And so today we ask you to save them. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.